Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Sally Yates and I first sat down for The Axe Files in 2018, when we explored her extraordinary life and career in the law. This spring, the former acting Attorney General of the United States is a Pritzker Fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics, And I felt, given all the challenges we've seen in recent years to our democracy, the rule of law, and equal justice, it'd be a great time to sit down for another conversation. We did that yesterday, talked about all of that, and this being Mental Health Awareness Month, also our shared, very personal commitment to suicide prevention. And let me just say, if you are listening to this podcast and you are grappling with issues of depression, mental illness, if you're trapped in this long, dark tunnel, please reach out for help. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Sally Yates, it is always great to see you. Good to see you again. We we had a chance to, uh, to talk a few years ago on my Axe Files TV show, uh, but uh, it's great to catch up, especially since you are currently serving as a fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, inspiring a whole new generation of of uh, young leaders. So um, I'm I'm grateful for that, but eager to catch up. So much to talk about. Well, let me tell you that whole new generation of leaders is they're actually the ones who are inspiring me. I am absolutely confident I am getting more out of this than they are. (laughs) And I leave every session, whether it's one of the seminars or whether it's the office hours, you know, times that I have to speak with them with a real spring in my step and a real hope about the future of our country because of students like them. And we're in uh, we're in desperate need of that kind of inspiration Mm -hmm. uh, right now. And I wanted to start there. And maybe you, you want to talk a little bit about the, the, the seminars that you're doing at the, the Institute. But I mean, one thing that struck me when, we, before, when I was preparing to sit down with you for the first time is you are really, I mean, you grew up in the law, your grandfather was in the law, your father was in uh, the law. You spent 27 years at the, at the Department of Justice. And uh, I'm wondering what assumptions that you made along the way that have been shaken uh, or tested in the last five years, which have been so tumultuous in so many different ways. Uh, and just, just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering what your your thoughts are on that. I don't think I'm the only one who's been shaken Absolutely in the last not. five years. You know, um, and having been somebody who really spent my career, my professional career as 
a public servant at the Department of Justice, I really believe in our democratic institutions. And regardless of whether you know, it's a Republican in the White House or a Democrat, we can debate over those policy issues and we should, but the institutions that define our democracy are really the most important thing. And you know, I've never seen an all-out assault on institutions um, and certainly in the course of my lifetime, uh, uh, like we saw over the four years of the Trump presidency. And um, I, I think what's even more disturbing is seeing the hangover of that now um, when it comes to truth. And, and from my perspective, that's really been the most dangerous thing of all of this, is that it seemed that we went almost from a an indifference to truth during part of that administration to an outright hostility um, toward it now. And again, as I said, we can debate policies and we, and we should, but it has to be based on a common set of facts. And the, the lack of, of any, of even being loosely tethered to truth for some, I think is a really dangerous thing for our country. You know, we can say that without question, uh, these institutions depend on the good will and commitment of the people who hold public offices. But Donald Trump had found a pretty large audience out there. And in every state, Georgia obviously became a, uh, a battleground. Uh, but uh, why, do you, why do you think he, he, he found such a receptive audience uh, for that, that message that institutions were not to be trusted, uh, facts were relative, uh, nothing was on the legit. Uh, you know, you're a you. You come from the South. That's a bastion of of, of Trumpism. Tell me about about that. Look, I, I'm not going to pretend that I've got the answer to that. Um, I think we all have to recognize that Donald Trump didn't start this. That he tapped into a disaffection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and a disaffection that some of us probably didn't fully recognize as much as we should have um, before his election. And, you know, once he had tapped into that and um, has now created sort of the, the, the funnels of news that also occur so that um, once someone is sort of in the stable, they hear almost only news that, that reinforces what they already believe. And I think that's created a really toxic brew as well right now. Um, and, and look, I think we all need to do a better job of trying to listen to opposing viewpoints. Um, but there also has to be an element of, of critical examination of news to, again, try to get back to those. There is such a thing as objective truth. There are facts out there. It's not all relative. And um, I, it seems that Trump, Trump was able to tap into what some people wanted to believe. But now I think there are also people who are supporting him who don't actually believe all of this stuff, but it is politically expedient for them to, to latch on to it. Yeah, well, one of the things that they believe in large numbers, we see in polls at least among uh, Republicans is that the election was fraudulent. And now you're going to like a core, <laughs> that, that is the bedrock principle of a democratic society, free and, 
and fair elections. What, what were your thoughts as you watched the events leading up to January 6th and the events of January 6th as someone who served as the acting attorney general? Well, look, I, I certainly was disturbed with the events leading up to January 6th. Because again, regardless of the outcome of the election, whether your preferred candidate wins or not, the cornerstone of our democracy is that we have a peaceful transition of power. We respect the results of the election. And if you don't like who you elected, you vote them out the next time. But this, um, again, from the very beginning, you know, right from, from election day on, the, the you know, beginning of the big lie of, of, of planting the seeds of distrust in our electoral process that, again, was batted down time and time again by court after court, by secretary of state after secretary of state. I mean, it's hard to imagine a situation where there was more overwhelming evidence establishing that what, being, what was being said wasn't true, but yet if it's repeated often enough, and if there are people who want to believe that, they will. And then seeing that happen, and I was certainly concerned about the ability of the incoming administration to be able to govern um, in a way with the legitimacy that, that's really necessary. But I, I will confess, I did not anticipate there, that we would have a literally a violent insurrection at the Capitol um, on January 6th. And uh, I think all of us watched with horror that day at what was happening at our nation's capital with also a feeling of, okay, this has to be it, regardless of where one is on the political spectrum. Surely we can all agree that this can never happen again, um, that this is going at the very bedrock of our democracy. And, and it seemed like that lasted for maybe a week or so maybe a little bit longer than that. And then even there, um, it, it is dissipated now. We can't even unify around that. Let me ask you about Georgia uh, and uh, the election there and Trump's uh, intervention uh, in Georgia. Um, did he, there's currently an investigation ongoing in uh, Fulton County uh, of his calls to election officials to try and get them to change uh, the result. Uh, how significant do you think his risk is here? Oh, those are tough cases, I, I imagine, to, to bring. Do you see him in real jeopardy there? You know, I don't know anything about what, you know, I don't know any facts beyond what I've seen, you know, publicly reported as well and don't know anything about I mean, based what on they're what looking you've at or the state statutes. It seems like it would be a tough case to bring. But then again, I will sort of catch myself and say, have I kind of gotten numbed to this, too, where you have a sitting president reaching out, imploring the secretary of state to find the number of votes he needs um, to be able to be elected? I would need to know a lot more about what the facts are and what the elements of the state offense would be. I'm, I'm a careful lawyer here. Yeah, um, I can see. <laughs> no, I understand that. But look, it's uh, outrageous I, conduct, but whether or not it will meet the elements of a criminal offense. I just don't know the answer to that. In your state, famously, and many other states now, uh, this fiction that there was fraud, uh, widespread fraud in the election, has become the predicate for changes in election laws that actually may affect the outcome of the next election by discouraging uh, or making it harder for people uh, 
to vote. Um, and I know that you've probably spent a lot of time hearing and looking at uh, what's been done uh, in Georgia. What are the practical effects of the changes that they've made there and how concerned are you about them? Look, I am very concerned about them. I'm concerned first because of the genesis of these changes, that it is ostensibly to to protect against non-existent voter fraud. Um, so you have to start from that from that starting point here that taking these steps that make it more difficult for people to vote, um, that all of that is based again on the big lie, that there was widespread widespread voter fraud um, that stole the election from Donald Trump. And then when you look at some of the specific provisions of this, and you, you see this really taking root in, in other states across the country, they are designed, for example, to make it more difficult to vote by absentee ballot which was used extensively in the last election, which is a really good thing. We should be trying to make it easier for people to vote, not more difficult for them to vote. By reducing the number of drop boxes, by making it illegal to send out applications to all voters for absentee um, applications. Um, here, just, you know, provision after provision that eat away um, you know, one of the ones here being where if you arrive at the wrong precinct, Georgia has really cut down on the number of precincts. And so if someone arrives at their old precinct and it's the wrong one, and if they get there before five o'clock, they can't cast the provisional ballot like they used to be able to do. Instead, they're turned away and they've got to go to wherever this new precinct is. Well, that may not sound like a big thing to you and me. If you're a single parent and it's hard for you to be able to get the time to get out and be voting in person to begin with, and then you get there and you're turned away, why would we do that instead of just accepting the provisional ballot? No one element of this perhaps impacts that many votes, but collectively they can impact a fair number and every single vote should count. And so to me, this is really insidious to, again, be using this false narrative of widespread, widespread voter fraud to make it more difficult for people to vote. Some of the most disturbing provisions are the ones that would, uh, where the legislature arrogated to itself uh, authorities uh, to override local election officials. Right, because remember, in this election, we saw some legislators saying afterwards sort of, their excuse for not overturning the results was that they didn't have the authority yeah. to do it. Um, now, in Georgia, under certain circumstances, the state legislature would have the authority. And while, you know, in the past, it would have been impossible to imagine, you would actually have a situation where the state legislature would override the will of the people. Uh, you, you know, I'm not sure anything's out of, out of the realm of possibilities now. Yeah, but if you were sitting in the attorney general's office right now, there are limits to what you can do about this. Absent new legislation from the Congress, that's being debated right now. It's it's dubious at, as we sit here that the, uh, that certainly they'll get ten. It's almost impossible to imagine ten Republican votes. Uh, filibuster comes into play. It, it may be that hands are tied on this. And isn't that a sad state of affairs 
where it breaks down along partisan lines when you're talking about a measure to make it easier for people to vote or to prevent voter restrictions. But I think that you're probably right. Now, I'm not saying that all challenges are doomed. I don't know enough about, you know, each of the state measures and, and what some of the challenges might be there. So I'm certainly hopeful that some of them can can be beat back. Um, but I think we probably all recognize that and in this, you know, in 2022, it's going to be a different a different situation in a number of states. We also have um, a different Supreme Court than we've had in mm-hmm. the past. And they've you know, they a less conservative court ruled on Shelby versus Holder and gutted uh, some core elements of the Voting Rights Act. Unlikely that they're uh, that they're going to choose to intervene on state legislative acts, uh, isn't it? I mean, I can't see this yeah. court uh, making a stand for voting rights. You know, it's hard to see when you know Shelby County was a five-four decision and. You know, part of the language from from Justice Roberts was, you know, we've come a long way um, since the 60s and 70s and sort of not so worried about those voter suppression actions anymore. And and you got to wonder kind of how he's feeling about that today when he sees the actions of of states across the country. Yeah, you do. Although you also you have to consider that there are there are what, three new justices on the court. Right. Since right. since Shelby, so even if he were to have a change of heart, it's not at all clear that uh, that he could bring a majority of the court along with them. That's why Congress needs to act. But yeah, but but you know the practicality of that is difficult as well. Yeah, but this goes right to the core of the of the discussion here about the sort of fragility of democracy if we don't adhere to uh, democratic norms. And so on. Now, the Voting Rights Act, the, the piece that uh, that Shelby gutted uh, was preclearance of mm-hmm. states with a history of uh, of undermining voting rights for minority voters, particularly for black uh, Americans. And as soon as that as soon as Shelby was uh, decided, you saw a lot of the states with those traditions back essentially back to taking steps to undermine people's right to vote. And now we see it en masse. So uh, that Shelby division, uh, that Shelby decision uh, looms very large. It does. And in fact, Don Verrilli was actually speaking today. Former Solicitor General, yes. Right. And we were talking precisely about that, about when you knew the decision was bad at the time, but now we are seeing the results of that in very stark, very stark form. Speaking of the Justice Department, when you were uh, when you were in the Justice Department, there was a great focus on uh, terrorism from abroad. Mm-hmm. Now we have a whole new threat, which is domestic terrorism. But given the 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 polarity and the divisions that you mentioned earlier, how sensitive are these? Like, how much authority do you think that the Justice Department can impose? to try and control this problem, you know, because one person's domestic terrorism could, in the minds of some of the the, the, the Trump world, be viewed as uh, interference in, in political activity. Right. Well, you, know, you say a, a whole new threat. And it's true that on the scale that we're seeing now today, it's a whole new threat. But domestic terrorism, and particularly violent white extremism, 
has been around for a very long time. Right, right. Um, you know, I remember prosecuting Eric Rudolph, who was the yes. Olympic Park bomber. Absolutely a white supremacist. That is a lot of what motivated him. But he was a lone bomber. And yes. the difference was, is that back then, and I'm totally aging myself now, but but back then, he didn't have, well, for one thing, even kind of the same use of the internet, but certainly not social media like we have now, where people like Eric Rudolph could find other people who think like Eric Rudolph and converse together and plan together. And that's what you have now that you didn't have sort of back in the day where people had to actually like meet in person or somehow find each other and talk over the phone. And so certainly you had some conspiracies, but you didn't have an ability to legitimize that kind of thinking like you see when you look on some of these social media sites now. Um, it's almost in some ways like I remember when we first started prosecuting child porn cases. I know this is going to sound like a weird analogy here, but I remember our interviewing um, some of the defendants in those cases, and they said, you know, they had always had these proclivities, but before they were in these chat rooms on the internet and talking to other pedophiles, they never acted on it because they thought they were weird and deviant and they didn't do it. But once they got in these chat rooms and they all convinced each other that they were actually helping children, then they actually begin began to act on that more. And it's kind of, in some ways, the same way with domestic terrorism. You know, there are a lot of white supremacists out there, um, unfortunately. Uh, but when they get together and start conspiring and support one another and then move to act on it. And, and you're right, I, there is a sensitivity there because um, we, we don't believe in thought patrol here in the United States, that people are allowed to um, not only have offensive ideas, they're allowed to express offensive ideas. But what they're not allowed to do is to act violently on those. And that's what we're seeing more and more of today. We've heard that from the FBI director, uh, I think today from the attorney general and from Secretary Mayorkas. And it is a, a new and growing challenge um, for our law enforcement and intelligence communities as a result. In addition to social media, we've never actually had people in high places winking sure. and nodding and embracing uh, some of these uh, white supremacist uh, groups. Uh, we've never had a president of the United States uh, telling them to stand down and stand by as President Trump did uh, the Proud Boys. And there has been kind of a, you know, it's as if some of these groups have been validated. And the fact that so many people in Congress uh, have uh, now, as you said, backed off and are dismissing what happened on January 6th and saying, let's move on, is one more signal that maybe there's more running room for these groups. What was your impression of, I don't know if you caught Liz Cheney's speech uh, last night on the House floor. What, what is, what was, what's your perception of that whole epic episode in our politics the, uh, right now? Yeah, you know, I didn't see the whole thing. I've, I've seen some pretty extensive excerpts of it. And Look, I probably don't agree with Liz Cheney yeah. on many policy decisions, yeah, and I yeah. never thought I'd be yeah. saying, yeah, go Liz Cheney. Um, but I am. And again, isn't it a sad commentary 
that were cheering her on for simply telling the truth and for refusing to be silent when others are not. Um, when I say that's a low bar, I am not in, in any way in, intending to diminish um, what she has said and done, but rather what a sort of frightening state that we've gotten to where someone speaking the truth is a remarkable thing. Um, you know, I actually look, I, I certainly don't philosophically align, but I think our country is the strongest when we have a good, strong two-party system where Democrats and Republicans debate ideas and sometimes the Democrats win and sometimes the Republicans win, but it's about policy and ideas and not um, what it seems to be devolving to now, where there is a denial of truth. And in fact, people are punished, which she is being punished for telling the truth. And I certainly never thought our country would come to that. Yeah. The thing that she's uh, been promoting uh, which is a 9-11 style commission, something the Speaker of the House has suggested as well, seems very appropriate for what happened mm -hmm. on January 6th. We ought to know how this happened, why it happened, and how we stop it. Uh, that shouldn't be a revolutionary idea, but it's offensive to the, uh, to the man in Mar-a-Lago, and therefore it is offensive to the majority of Republicans in Congress. And she deserves credit for standing up to that. I, like you, have different views than Liz Cheney on, on most issues. But we all ought to share a common concern about the state of our democracy. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. I mentioned the Attorney General. You were considered a candidate uh, for Attorney General. And it seemed to me that you, in certain ways, were, and I'm a, you know, Merrick Garland is someone I deeply respect. By all rights, he should be on the Supreme Court right now. Uh, but um, it seems to me that in certain ways, uh, just by being where you were, when you were, and doing your job, which is being the acting attorney general uh, and the deputy attorney general during the uh, during the Russia probe and the the uh, and the aftermath of or the beginnings of the Russia probe and the and the aftermath of the 2016 election and so on, and uh, the confrontations that you had with the administration properly over policy, that you became controversial in a way a career prosecutor doesn't expect to. That must have been disappointing. Well, first, let me say I have tremendous respect for Merrick Garland as well. And yeah. while I'm not going to be so coy as to say that I wasn't disappointed um, in, in not having an opportunity, is that a double negative there, um, to serve yeah. as, but I get as attorney point. general? Yeah, yes. you, get, you yeah. get what I'm trying to say there. I mean, of course I am. I wouldn't be honest if I didn't, if I didn't acknowledge that. But much more important uh, than whether I'm disappointed is whether the department is in good hands and the department is in excellent hands. Now, to your point, though, about whether I became controversial, you know, maybe in the eyes of some, I, I certainly can't speak to that. I, I wouldn't do anything differently. I, I feel like it was important that I do my job 
And anything less than that would have been not doing my job. And I don't think you ought to live your life trying to set yourself up for a job later on or to avoid something that might uh, make it more difficult for you to get confirmed later. I think you ought to do what you think is right. And then the chips fall where they, where they do. You're talking in this uh, seminar about equal justice. And I'm wondering, I asked at the beginning, um, are there things that have caused you to rethink? Are there things that you have learned? As someone who uh, is, uh, has spent, spent her life committed to the rule of law and the principles of justice, that, sa- that caused you to say, man, we have much more work to do. We have more work than I thought. And I, I asked that in the context of uh, this recent Chauvin trial and, and this sort of epidemic of police cases. And I know you handled some civil rights cases when you were a U.S. attorney in Georgia uh, involving police, uh, uh, excessive force by police. Sitting back now as someone observing, tell me where you think we're at and, uh, and how, we, how, we, how we improve the situation as we find it. You know, I think we are at an inflection point when it comes both to racial justice and specifically police reform. You know, again, none of this is new either. Um, We've been struggling with these issues for not just years, but decades. But I think it, you know, it it has come to a point and it certainly came to the point um, with the Chauvin trial and with George Floyd, where we all were confronted with nine and a half minutes of video where we saw a police officer indifferently have his neck knee on the neck of George Floyd with the life literally just flowing out of him. And for nine minutes and 29 seconds, not just that jury, but the whole world saw that and Look, we all know that's not the first time this has ever happened. We all know this has happened before in times when it wasn't caught on video. But in a lot of ways, I felt like as we watched that and as the trial was going on, it wasn't just Chauvin and it wasn't just George Floyd. It was all the people who had come before them while the nation held its breath, I think, um, in terms of what the verdict was going to be. And I think the case was so overwhelming. And so shocking that it could have happened that any other verdict than guilty um, would have, uh, I think, had a, had a significantly destabilizing effect on the country. And so while I think that verdict was essential for us going forward, it's certainly not sufficient. Um, it was important to hold Chauvin responsible for his actions, but we've got more work that needs to be done systemically in police departments. And look, there's a whole list of specific reforms that lots of other people, you know, have have talked about and, and, and worked on, and we can talk about some of those. But to me, it kind of comes down to the question of whether or not we are looking at law enforcement and whether law enforcement sees themselves as guardians or warriors. And again, I didn't coin that distinction either. That, that's a concept and an approach that, that's been around for, for some years as well. But within that is encompassed the idea of whether uh, police force and, and individual police officers recognize their responsibility to de-escalate when they can, 
whether they recognize their responsibility to intervene, whether we as a society will not look to law enforcement for um, a lot of times when it ought to be a social type services person who's responding instead of a cop with a gun. Um, I think we are at the point now where nibbling around the edges and just having individual one-off accountabilities is not going to do it. It really, we've got to have some, some significant systemic reform. And I think there's a hunger out there for that now, but also some resistance to that at the same time. And trying to find that place in the middle where where folks can get together to move forward is going to be, you know, a difficult a difficult but essential step, I think. Finding place in the middle has been is difficult on almost everything yeah. uh, in our politics these days. You actually were an advocate in the past for creating special units who were expressly trained for dealing with mental health issues and uh, the kinds of issues that keep flaring up in these police uh, shooting cases because, as, as you point out, police are not meant to deal with those. They're not mostly, they're not as trained, they're not trained to deal with these situations. That's not their, that's not their role. But I mean, how many years ago did you start talking about that? Oh, gosh, that's been at least eight, eight or 10 yeah. years ago. Yeah, yeah, started. And there are some jurisdictions that do that. Um, but you're absolutely right. Police officers generally are not trained in how to respond to those. Look, they don't want to be there either because they recognize that they're not the best people to be responding to this. And so. Um, you know, we actually have a, a confluence here where nobody thinks this is a good idea for for cops to be the responders here. But again, it takes the will, the local will, then to create these special units to do the training so that they can be the ones to respond. And look, that's that's an important component. I'm not suggesting that that check we're done after that, but but I think that is an important component. It was striking uh, uh, that during the trial just a few miles away from where the trial was being held, another young man was shot uh, in Brooklyn Center, uh, Minnesota, uh, on a, for having an expired tag on his car, uh, shot by an officer who said they thought they were going to taser this young man, but instead they reached for their gun by mistake. That, that's what she has argued. But why would you even taser someone for not having the proper tag on their on their license. And it does raise the question, I was walking along the street today and I saw a Black Lives Matter sign and I recognize how uh, that that has become, you know, a source of great controversy. And, you know, why 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 should just black my the the reason that people have Black Lives Matter signs is because black lives haven't mattered as much as white lives. And that has been true for four hundred years. Um and uh, that's certainly been true in, in, in the relationship between law enforcement and the community, has it not? Oh, it, it absolutely has. You know, I remember back when I was U.S. attorney in Atlanta and Eric Holder was AG. He and I were having a discussion. I'm not even sure why we were talking about this. Our sons are about the same age. And Eric's son was getting ready to go off to college. And he was telling me about having to have the talk with his son. And I sat there thinking, I don't have to have the talk with my son. 
You know, Eric Holder is the attorney general of the United States, and yet he's got to talk to his son about how to behave if he has an encounter with law enforcement in case he is in a situation where something bad could happen like that. And look, certainly it can happen to to white young men as well, but statistically not anywhere nearly as frequently as it does. And, you know, in that simple conversation that drove home to me that it's, I mean, it is clearly not the same. It, it hasn't been for 400 years. It's clearly not now. And enough. Um, this is when I think when I say that it's time for systemic change, this is when we have to recognize that, for example, all of us carry around unconscious biases. Um, while just because we all may have those, though, doesn't make it okay when you're in law enforcement or you're a prosecutor to be acting on those biases. And so law enforcement should be trained in that. Look, there's some cops who are acting on conscious biases, and that's a whole other you know, issue there as well. But, you know, the time is now, I believe, for us to not just be, you know, putting our weight in one or two or three of these areas, but to be approaching this, you know, from a whole lot of different angles, um, to be able to establish once and for all that, yes, Black Lives Matter, and we are going to try to do something to address the inequities of the system. What about you? You mentioned the courts, uh, and obviously there is a problem when you look at the uh, disproportionality of people of color in our prisons. We we imprison people at a, a higher rate than almost any right. industrialized country. How do we unwind that? And when you look back at your career as a prosecutor, do you, are there are there things that you think? that you saw that you now look back and say, that was clearly wrong. That was a mistake. We should not have pursued that policy. We should not have pursued that case. In the drug realm, uh, obviously you've Mm -hmm. talked about Mm -hmm. drugs uh, as one uh, area, but um, how do we get to this place? You know, you're right. We do have the highest incarceration rate in the world. We have 5%, a little less than 5% of the world's population, yet nearly 25% of its prisoners. And there are a number of factors that have have fed into that, but certainly disproportionately long sentences and particularly for drug offenses has been a big driver of that. And the lack of alternatives to incarceration for lower lower level offenses. Um, When you look, for example, back in the 80s and 90s at the height of the crack epidemic when laws were passed both federally, but in states all across the country and with recidivist enhancements, you ended up with some drug defendants, nonviolent drug defendants going to prison 20, 30, 40 years, some even life without parole in the federal system. Yes, I can say, I, I don't think that's right. It's not proportional. It's not just, it's not wise. It's not a good use of our resources all of those things. And that's, you know, there's been some some winding back of some of that. Still, I think there's a lot more to do. There's been some progress, but but there could be more. You have, for example, still disparities in, in crack and powder ratios. Those have, have, again, been dialed back, but there's no reason for there to be any disparity between powder cocaine and crack cocaine, and particularly with the disproportionate impact that that has on the African-American community. 
And then in the state systems, because in the federal system, you don't really prosecute drug right. possession and all much. But in the state systems, this idea that we're throwing people in prison for what are really drug addiction offenses, rather than providing the treatment that they need, not only is that you know contributing to our incarceration rates, we're not helping the recidivism rate at all when we do that either. And if the goal here is safer communities and a more just system, we have to be more creative and be willing to invest more in alternatives to incarceration as well. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. One of the first cases you tried as a young lawyer before you ever became uh, a prosecutor was uh, on behalf of a woman named Lovey Morrison Jones uh, in Georgia. Uh, she had inherited uh, 92 acres in a rural county there, Barrow County, uh, from her family. Uh, but uh, they, uh, she never filed a deed. Uh, and there was an effort to uh, take this land away uh, from her, and you uh, represented her. Uh, and uh, was, was it an all-white jury? It was. It was. Again, I'm dating myself. Back before Batson, the Supreme Court case that prevents lawyers from um, eliminating jurors based on race, before it applied to civil cases, and so the lawyers on the other side got rid of all the white, got, excuse me, got rid of all the African-American jurors. So it was an all-white jury. Yeah. And you you won that case, but it underscored, and that was extraordinary and moving. Uh, I mean, I'm not doing it justice in the retelling here. I was telling you before, I want to ask you in a minute about wh why you don't write about some of these cases that you've been involved in this, the Rudolph case and others. Uh, but... Um, but it also underscores the fact that that was unusual. The fact that a a young pro bono lawyer like yourself came forward and provided uh, uh, this representation and your firm, extraordinary representation mm -hmm. for this woman, and the fact that she won and that it was so noteworthy underscores the fact that it isn't just in the criminal justice system, but throughout the justice system that uh, bias plays a big role. It does. And here, um, and you'll have to give me the hook here. Or I'll, I'll get caught up in the whole long story of this. But, <laughs> um, she had not recorded her deed because back when, when her family got this property, it's back in the 1930s in rural Georgia, um, they didn't trust the white court system then to be going in and filing a deed. So the property meant so much to her and her family. She carried this deed that was written on a piece of cloth, folded up down inside her dress every day. As she, They were farmers as she went out and worked the field. She didn't want to let that deed out of her sight. That's how much it meant to her. Well, it was the same courthouse where they understandably had not trusted to file their deed where the jury did the right thing and returned a verdict for her. And so 
as a young lawyer, having absolutely no idea what I was doing. I've never even seen a trial before this case. And so the jury, as I think I told you before, it was in spite of my performance, not because of it. But to see it come full circle here in the very same courthouse, and it should not be an extraordinary thing for a jury to do the right thing and return that property to her. But for her, and, and for her daughter, it was an extraordinary thing. And actually, for those jurors, I think they felt really good about what they had done as well. Again, you would say you shouldn't pat yourself on the back for doing the right thing. Um, but to me, that just drives home, you know, not every case has to be the big headline grabbing precedent setting. It's about a lot of money kind of case that our justice system, even on the civil side, know, flourishes is most important in this simple writing of a wrong, which is what that was. And I said, you're going to have to give me the hook and I'm sorry. No, no, that's okay. But it underscores a little bit of my point, which is you got to write this. You got to, this is a movie, what you just described. I'm re I read that story and I thought, boy, that would be a great film. This woman's, this woman's, uh, battle. So, uh, but you told me that you, you, you don't want to, you don't want to, highlight yourself so you don't want to, but you should. I mean, you should write these stories, this case, the Rudolph case and other cases, and all your involvement in uh, in Washington are great stories. So I'm here to tell you, write the book. <laughs> write the book, Sally. This is, spoken, this is, spoken to someone who knows how to write a book. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I, but I, I really think, I really think you should. Um, but uh, uh it, it does underscore, though, just this legacy that we're still trying to overcome in this uh, in this country. And again, this was a this was a triumph, and it can happen, but it shouldn't be extraordinary. And by the way, one footnote to your own participation. I mean, my my notes tell me you tell me if this is wrong that you actually had kind of a novel legal theory that you gleaned from one of your property classes that ended up being the key to winning the case. So don't be so, don't be so modest about it. <laughs> yeah. Adverse possession, which for any of the lawyers out there will know, you think you're going to learn that in first year property and then never use it again. Um, actually came in handy. <laughs> I, I want to ask you about your family and I want to talk about a subject that's important to both of us. Before I do, I know your sister um, and you have different political views and she okay. she was i guess she still is a talk radio no no i think she, she has been in the past but but not now but yeah you're right we have different political views i think probably like a lot of families around the country um you know she, she's a donald trump supporter and i'm not so um yeah well you're not just not but you you've come face to face with uh with all of that how I, i'm sure i may have asked you this before but how are you guys doing? How do you process that as a family? We don't talk about politics a whole lot. I think that that's sort of the better way um, to, to, to handle that. But look, I love my sister a lot. And when this whole issue came up and when I was fired, while she may be a Republican and, and a Trump supporter, she was very personally supportive of me and has mm -hmm. been very personally supportive of me. Um, and any of these. And in fact, uh, you know, I've heard that she will, will sort of get into it sometimes with some of the others folks who, who may not share her views on that. And so 
blood is definitely thicker in, than water in, in that regard. That's good to hear. Yeah. So we've ta- we talked in the past about this history that we share, which in that mm-hmm. we both lost our dads to, uh, to suicide. And um, when we first talked about it, you were hesitant to talk about it. I think you were a little mad at me for, uh, for, for, uh, for, for raising it. Um, and, um, and you got quite a reaction to it as I, I thought you would, because I've experienced this myself. It turns out there are a whole lot of people out there who are struggling with mental illness, Mm -hmm. depression, who've lost someone they love to it. And, um, uh, who in many cases are battling, um, a stigma that shouldn't exist because mental illness is an illness. It's not a, it's not a blemish of character. Uh, so, but tell me about your journey here because you've become quite an advocate. Um, and, uh, as anyone who you've ever represented knows, having you as an advocate is a very good thing. Well, you're right. I had not spoken about it much publicly before you and I, um, did our interview. And that was for, a. a several reasons. One, it was hard for me to do without getting emotional and still incredibly painful um, to think about and to talk about. But also, I think I had, um, I felt very protective of my dad. And, you know, one of the things I think that is really um, challenging for people who who take their lives is they end up becoming defined by the way they died. Yes, yes. And I feel like that's terribly unfair, not just for my dad, but for other people as well. And so I wanted to protect him from, from his legacy being that he, he committed suicide. Um, but I have, and, and thanks to you really for raising this with me, I have come full circle on this. And, you know, I, I found whatever voice it is that I have now, I'm still not entirely sure what this thing is, but whatever <laughs> voice that I have. Powerful, um, go with it. Yeah, I I do feel a responsibility to try to use it for good. And one of the ways of using it for good has been to do more advocacy and and outreach and speaking on the issue of mental health and suicide prevention in particular. And so, you know, during this time, I mean, gosh, I've been doing a lot of this, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, for example, um, the, the Chief Justice of the Georgia Supreme Court had a seminar, a three-hour seminar for Georgia lawyers on suicide prevention. There have been a number of lawyers and judges who have taken their lives over the last few years, and he brought together um, members of the bar who either were family members who were left-behind survivors, some lawyers who themselves had attempted suicide and could come back and talk about that, as well as mental health practitioners and counselors there, and um, I moderated this, and over 1,900 lawyers from Georgia registered for this event. I was stunned by that. And then the outreach that I've gotten since then and emails from people who feel in a lot of ways freed just to hear other people talking about it. And I think that's part of what I feel a real responsibility to do now is to try to bring mental illness out of the shadows um, so that people will feel more comfortable reaching out for the help that they need with this illness. I know 
with my dad, that's a big part of why he was not comfortable seeking help. He was worried about the stigma. He had been an appellate court judge. He was worried about what people would think. Now, this is the mid-80s then. I think we're in somewhat better place now, but not where we should be. And until we can talk about mental illness with the same kind of ease that we talk about heart disease or kidney disease and not expect someone who is suffering from depression or from bipolar disorder or anxiety or whatever it might be to just tough it out on their own and to instead reach out and get the help that they need until we reach that point, there's still more work to do. And so I'm grateful to have an opportunity to to be a small part, hopefully, of being able to help make that happen. It's so important. You know, my dad was a, uh, was a psychologist. My dad was a mental health professional, and yet, and yet, he did not feel, he had all these people who depended on him. And at his funeral, uh, one after another of his patients who did not know how he died, came up to me and said, you know, your dad saved my life. He saved their lives, but he couldn't save his own because he could not reach out for the help that he needed because he thought somehow that would that would diminish him or 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 or, or uh you know be besmirch him as a you know whatever we'll never know because he never spoke to anyone about it but uh I like you I mean it took me 30 years Sally to 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 publicly talk about it I'm I'm and it was because exactly what you said I want I didn't want my dad to be defined that way. But then I realized that is exactly why he didn't get help. That's why he didn't get the help in it, because somehow he viewed it as a as as a blemish on his character or something. I, I don't know. But um then I realized I should speak about it any chance I get so that people understand it's okay. It's okay to talk about it. This is not a character issue. This is a, a, a health issue. And um, so I'm, I'm really proud of, 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 of what you're doing and grateful for what you're doing. Uh, in, in, and I think if your dad and my dad wind up through their stories and our sharing of our stories, uh, uh, end up saving people's lives, that will be part of their legacy. And so I'm just really, really grateful to you for for what you're doing. Well, I'm grateful to you for encouraging it. And I know we have both said before, if we can impact one life and all of the speaking or advocacy that we do, if we impact one life, it's all worth it there. So um, I I feel, as I said, I, I, I feel grateful to have a chance to to try to have an impact in this area. And I do think that things are getting better. But I think, for example, during the pandemic, where people have been even more isolated um, than they were before. And, you know, so many of us, particularly in sort of high pressure professions, keep up that facade of having it all together. Um, And oftentimes, like, for example, it sounds like with your dad, people didn't know um, how he was suffering and what he was carrying around. And so hopefully we will all become more free to be able to, to share that, those things with the yeah. people that we care about and, and for folks to get the help that they need. Yes, yes. And, um, and hopefully the, all those who are listening to us will 
carry that message uh, as well. So you say you want to use your voice, uh, your powerful voice, uh, to do good. Tell me what else uh, you're doing right now, other than inspiring a bunch of uh, uh, young people to be the next Sally Yates and, and other uh, do, do people who have the ability to do good in the world. Well, I am loving the time at the University of Chicago, and I do a fair amount of that in terms of speaking and to colleges, universities, law schools, trying to encourage young folks to consider public service, whether it's as a lawyer or otherwise. But, you know, I think that that is, is one of the great essential strengths of our country. Also working on criminal justice reform, you know, that's something that um, was a real priority for me when I was at DOJ, and I am the co-chair of the Council on Criminal Justice, which is a bipartisan criminal justice reform, a relatively new um, nonprofit, uh, formed a couple of years, three years ago, um, during the time after I was out. And it's really a a place where there's a lot of of work that's done on evidence-based on initiatives in, you know, a whole wide variety of areas, from sentencing reform to prison reform, which was certainly a passion of mine, uh, recent now as well. And again, trying to provide those recommendations and to cut through some of the noise that's out there right now on these issues to be able to fi- provide an authoritative place where people can go um, to find real information ab- about what will work there. And then another nonprofit, Project Healthy Minds, um, that addresses mental health and not just suicide prevention, but, but mental health and, and particularly focused on Gen X is I think I'm like the gray hair in the bunch here, <laughs> um, but but focuses also particularly on young people and, and addressing that because we certainly have seen, you know, a, a rise in suicide rates and mental health issues for younger people. Really tragic. And a lot of that has to do with social media as well yeah. and bullying on social media, something that we really have to, uh, we have to work on. It's uh uh, I, yeah. I've heard some really tragic stories, some touching people I know, um, and uh, just just so sad. And you continue to work uh, at your at a law firm and in, doing investigative work. I am, yeah, actually the same law firm, King and Spalding, where I was back when I did the pro bono case. So, yes, um, you know, I was there as a young associate and came back twenty eight years later. Um, doing yeah, investigative work and congressional work and um, ad- advising companies through crises. So I've got, I've got a good mix of things to do. And uh, you've so far resisted the importunings of people who would like you to run for public office? Yeah, I, you know, public service, yes, that's obviously where my heart is and probably will always be. But running for office just doesn't feel like me. Yeah, well... You, you, you're in a position to do an awful lot of good uh, where you are, and you are doing an awful lot of good where you are. And I just want to thank you for uh, the good you're doing at the university right now. These these young people, as you said at the beginning, uh, send you home hopeful every day uh, because they're skeptical, but they're not cynical. And they really do want to change the world for the better. And uh, they have the capacity to do it, uh, which which gives me hope, gives you hope should give everyone hope. Uh, so thank you for that. And ju- always great to see you. Thank you. Sally Yates, good to be with you. Great to be with you, David, as always. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio.
The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.